Reading from the Old Testament, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. This is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan uh, came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've uh, encouraged you and asked you to, to spend more time in prayer over the past few weeks. I wonder if some of you have, have in those moments when you've actually you know, cleared time in your schedule and, and made that, that quiet time and sat down in silence with no distractions, as you sat down to pray, I wonder if you felt like something was holding you back. Maybe you just sat down and all of a sudden you didn't know what to say, had no clue where to begin. Maybe you just sort of felt like there was some distance between you and God in that moment. Maybe you felt like God wasn't there at all uh, and you just sort of felt like you were just sitting in a chair alone, talking to nobody. I think there's a, a part of our prayer life that when we neglect it, it creates that distance. Now, I'll, I'll warn you now, because I have to, that I'm going to use the word sin often enough in this sermon that you're going to think I'm Baptist for a second. <laughs> um, we don't like to admit when we're wrong, right? We, we, nobody likes it, but some people dislike it more than others. Not, none of us really like to admit that we've done something or said something that was wrong and that someone else was right instead of us. I'm, I'm terrible about it. And I had to be honest because my wife was here this morning and now other people know. I, I never admit when I'm wrong, right? I have had arguments with that woman that have lasted you know, days because I wouldn't admit that I was wrong. I have told her flat out, no, the internet is lying to you. I'm right, they're wrong, right? Because I won't admit that I have the facts wrong about something. 
And what's funny is it's never anything important, right? It might literally be you know, something as dumb as like how to cook something or where, to, where something comes from. I've had arguments like this just about sports, right? About who plays for what team and when they, what the rule is and things like that, right? Things where it was obviously I was wrong and it didn't even matter. It wasn't all that important. And yet, yet, I refused to admit it. And we all do it. And it, it's never, you know, it's never a matter of importance. Until, until you're sitting down with God and you refuse to admit in that moment when you were wrong. We don't like to confess our sins. We don't even like to use the word confess our sins, right? That sounds too Catholic, um, right? And, and I'll warn you now, I'm not going to ask you to confess your sins to me. Please don't do that. I don't want to know what you did last night. I'm better off not knowing. But we don't like to do it. Right? We, we, we don't want to sit down there and, and confess our sins. And here's the problem. When we don't do it, when we don't do that, all we do is we create distance between ourselves and our God. Think back to when you were a kid and you did something wrong and you knew it was wrong. And you knew that at some point, eventually, you would have to tell your parents about it. Right? You knew eventually they would find out. What do you do? You avoid them. Right? You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to look them in the eye. You don't want to be around them. Why? Because you're ashamed. You know you messed up. You know you shouldn't have done whatever it was you did. And you're ashamed. Isn't it always worse when your parents say, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed? <laughs> because that cuts right to the heart of the problem. When we don't confess our sins, it's more often than not because we're ashamed of ourselves. We don't want to admit what we did. I was at a meeting with a bunch of pastors last week and, and one of the ones who was sitting next to me, we, you know, we got our food. It was lunchtime. And we'd been delayed in eating lunch by like an hour and 15 minutes because we were doing these just stupid icebreaker games that I hate. Um, <laughs> if my DS is watching this, I'm sorry. It was delightful. Um, <laughs> so we, we've been waiting and we finally sat down to eat and we were all kind of grumbling about how long it had taken to get to the part where we ate the food. And, and my colleague sitting next to me goes, you know, gluttony is my favorite sin. I thought, that's a great game. Let's, that should have been the icebreaker. Everyone go around and say what your favorite sin is, right? <laughs> Let's all list them off, and then we can compare notes. But in, in reality, that, that's actually part of the problem, right? We, we have favorite sins. We like them. Right? He was joking, but there's truth in it, right? He, he, we like it. It's fun. It's, it's pleasurable. It makes us feel good in some way, and it's easy to do. We all have a sin that we like. We have multiple, actually, if we're honest about it. And, and the thing is, if we confess it, if, we're, if we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm doing this and I know it's wrong, then we have to stop. And we don't want to. So that, too, is part of the problem. We know if we admit that it's wrong, then we have to actually make an effort to not do it anymore. We don't like that either. 
And finally, I think, I think sometimes we're just worried. We're just worried that God won't forgive us. Plain and simple. We're, we're willing to try and hold things back and not admit that they were wrong, were wrong because on some level, on some level, we are worried that we are too far gone. We're worried that we have done something so bad that it has marked us for life. And the good news is there is always more grace in God than there is sin in you. There's a line in the Lord's Prayer that says, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin or trespass against us. And in some versions, it just says sin instead of trespass. Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And, and the implication is those two things are connected, right? God will forgive you if you forgive others. Implying that if you aren't willing to forgive other people, you just might not get that forgiveness from God. But it goes both ways. You will have a hard time forgiving others if God doesn't forgive you. They work together. They're connected. See, the promise of the gospel is not that God's forgiveness is unconditional and automatically applies. It's Actually, the Bible seems pretty intent on telling you God's forgiveness is very conditional. Right? You have to ask for it, for one thing. Now, the beauty is, once you ask for it, you get it. No strings attached there, but you have to ask first. But before you can ask for forgiveness, you have to admit you did something wrong. And that's where we trip up all the time. You can't ask to be forgiven if you don't admit first that you messed up. And we don't like to do that. And so we end up creating this distance between ourselves and God as a result of, of our own shame, as a result of our own pride, refusing to admit we've taken a wrong step. We distance ourselves from God. And so it's no wonder then that maybe sometimes when we sit down to pray, it feels as though God's not there. Because we made the distance. There is a an ancient Christian practice called the examen. It's a Latin word, E-X-A-M-E-N. But it's the exact same thing as the English word examine. It means the same thing. They're just spelled differently. And it means what it says. It means you sit down and you examine your day. The idea is that, that you would practice this at the end of each day. You'd go back and you'd examine how you did that day. So you can, you can summarize it like this. You replay, you rejoice, you repent, and you reboot. So you replay, right? You just replay the events of the day, but, but not, not necessarily just the big headline events, but, but the little, small, mundane interactions that you might not otherwise notice, right? How did you respond when someone cut you off in traffic? How did you behave in line at the coffee shop? What did you say to the stranger on the street when they said hi to you? Right? Small, little, seemingly insignificant things. That's what you really have to drill down and focus on. And then you rejoice because inevitably, as you do this, you begin to see all the wonderful little ways that God is at work in your life. Things that you might not otherwise have noticed. Right? Maybe you got a phone call from a dear friend you hadn't spoken to in a while. Maybe you just had a really pleasant interaction with your spouse before you left for work and it made you smile before you went off. 
Maybe the weather was just really nice when you were walking your dog and that was wonderful, right? Small little ways that the Lord blesses us all the time, things we can be thankful for. It's good to rejoice in that before you go on to the next step because no one likes the next step because that's repentance, right? If repentance takes confession and, and goes a step further, it's, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, Lord, please help me not to do it again. It adds a step. It doesn't do you much good to ask for forgiveness and acknowledge that it's wrong if you're just going to do it again tomorrow, right? So, so in this part, you, you take those little mundane events you've replayed in your head, right? Well, Lord, I, I made a rude hand gesture at the person who cut me off in traffic. Um, yeah, I, you, <laughs> you, you see? You did it! Lord, Lord, I, I did this. Lord, I, I'm sorry that I did this. I know this is not how Christians are supposed to act. Lord, will you give me the strength to be better tomorrow? The little things. You see, repentance is a lot like taking a shower. Right? Now, you may be able to go a day or two without showering and no one notices, but by day three, I'm going to start to notice and I'll ask you to back up. Right? It builds up over time. By repenting daily of these little tiny seemingly meaningless things you keep yourself good you keep yourself clean if you don't do it you start to stink right the, the longer you go without doing it the the greater your tolerance becomes for sinful behavior how many times in the last five or ten years have we seen these big name influential christian leaders brought down by horrible scandals i can guarantee you that those people did not have a regular practice of repentance. Guarantee it, 100%. There's no way. And so over time, their tolerance for their own bad behavior grew and grew and grew and grew. And in the end, it brought them down. And then you reboot. You accept that you've moved on from this, right? You don't dwell on it. You're not sitting here trying to, to, to tell yourself, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Look at all the bad things I did. No, you acknowledge it. You ask for forgiveness. You ask God to help you not do it anymore, and you move on. You begin the next day fresh. Christianity is not about guilt all the time. It's the exact opposite. And that's what you do every day. It's a solid practice. Now, we don't like to talk about confessing our sins because we don't think it's what we're supposed to do, right? We, again, we think it's what the Catholics do. That's their thing over there. We do our own thing. But did you know that when the Methodist movement started, confession was a central practice? In fact, uh, John Wesley organized his people in, into small groups, and your, your membership was not with the Sunday morning worship. It was with your small group. You actually had to have a little ticket from your small group to come into worship on Sunday morning. Um, aren't you glad I don't do that? Not yet. We'll see. So you, you would have two groups. Okay? You, you'd have one group that was 12 to 15 people, mixed of men and women, all adults. And, and all you would do every week with that group is you would answer the question, how is it with your soul? That's it. No Bible study, nothing. You just answer that question, how is it with your soul? In other words, how are you doing? You all right? Is, what, where do you see God at work in your life? What's God doing with you? How's your spiritual life? That's what you do. The second group... The second group was, was smaller, three to four people, and divided by gender. So only men in one group, only women in the other group. And in that group, all you did every week was you sat together and you confessed your sins to one another. 
Now take a look around you. Look at the people in the pews. Who in this room would you do that with? Right? If you name anybody, you're lying. And I know it, right? None of us wants to do that. None of us wants to confess. Imagine, imagine knowing that the people next to you in the pews knew how you sinned in the last seven days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least you're honest, right? That's great. <laughs> now see, you, you'd go and you confess your sins, but then, then, they would ask you, is there any sin that you want to hide from the group this week? <laughs> right? They're on to you, right? What are you trying to hold back? What are you so ashamed of that you don't think you can share it with us? Every week. And once you have answered those questions, they would say to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. See, it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's about every one of us understanding that we are in need of God's forgiveness and that we receive God's forgiveness. Ruby Bridges was uh, six years old when she was volunteered by her mother, typical, uh, to be the first African-American student in a school in New Orleans. And every morning when she would go to school, she was escorted by 25 federal marshals because there was a crowd outside that school yelling death threats at a six-year-old girl. Every other parent in the school had pulled their kids out. She was the only student in the school. Only one of the teachers stayed behind to teach her because she was the only teacher who was willing to teach a black child. So every day she walked to the school through this crowd of people spewing death threats at her to spend the day alone with one teacher before walking home through that same crowd of people. So the, the child psychologist Robert Coles saw this happening on the news because it was national news at the time and, and thought to himself, you know, that, that poor kid is going through so much trauma. She needs help. And he offered his services. And so he began uh, for free every week to counsel her in her home. He'd go to her home so she wouldn't have to go out in public again, sit down with her and offer her therapy. So one week he says, Ruby, you, you looked like you were talking to the people in the street on your way to school yesterday. Um, did, did you finally get angry with him? Did you tell him how you were feeling? Did you tell him to leave you alone? Right? Typical psychologist, right? Did you let your emotions out? I know they're there. Did you let them out? She says, no. I, I didn't tell them anything. I wasn't talking to them. Well, who were you talking to? I saw your mouth moving. You were talking. The little girl says, I was talking to God. I was praying for the people in the street. Ruby, you were praying for them? But <laughs> why were you praying for them? And she says, well, don't you think they need praying for? <laughs> Brilliant. I love her. He says, well, what do, you, what do you say when you're praying for them, Ruby? She said, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. Just, just as... Jesus, as he was being nailed to the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. If you ever wonder what Jesus was talking about when he said that you need to have the faith of a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven, I mean, that's it right there. On November 8, 1987, the Irish Republican Army planted a 40-pound bomb in the town of Enniskillen. When it detonated, it killed 11 people and wounded 64. One of the people who died was a girl named Marie Wilson who was a nurse in the local hospital. She was trapped in the rubble with her father, and her last words were, Daddy, I love you so much. Just a couple hours later, her father was interviewed by the BBC, and he said this, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great girl. She loved her profession. She's dead. She's in heaven and we shall meet again. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. Because of that interview, there were no reprisals against the IRA. No one struck back. And for a time, there was peace. And ten years later, they issued a formal apology. The only time they had ever apologized for any of their actions. Do you see the difference that forgiveness makes? Maybe more importantly, do you see how hard it is to forgive? I gotta tell you, I... If someone killed my child, I don't think I'd be so quick to forgive them. I really don't. If someone was threatening to kill me, I don't think I'd be so quick to forgive them, not at six years old especially. Do you see how hard it is to actually forgive people the way that God demands we do it? This, this psalm is written by King David in the aftermath of what he did with Bathsheba. And just in case you maybe forgot that story, right? he raped her. There's no other word for it. He's the king. He sent his soldiers to get her from her house and brought her into the palace. She had no say in it. There was no way she could consent to it. The man raped her, impregnated her, and murdered her husband. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And God forgave him. That's the incredible part. He was, in fact, forgiven. Now, you're not that bad, I hope. But imagine, imagine the humility and the courage it took just for David, the king, to admit what he did. Because bear in mind, he's a king. Once he admits it, everyone will know. There's no privacy there. Everyone's going to know. 
and he does. And the Lord forgives him. He is still called a man after God's own heart. There is no such thing as being too bad for God to forgive. It doesn't work like that. And maybe you begin to see now why, why being forgiven by God and forgiving others goes hand in hand. You can't really begin to forgive others in this kind of radical way until you begin to truly understand just how deeply you're in need of God's forgiveness. And make no mistake about it, the, the forgiveness that is, that is demanded by the gospel is radical and it is extreme. And we're going to fall short. We already have. Think about, think about 20 years ago. What would have happened if churches had called for forgiveness for the people who organized the terrorist attacks on September 11th? How would you have responded to that? I mean, I know I'm young, but I'm old enough to remember that. I know what that day was like. I felt the outrage and the anger and the hurt. And I know I would not have been receptive to the idea that they deserve forgiveness too. I know it. And I don't recall a single church anywhere in the world coming forth to say, they want, they should be forgiven. God wants us to forgive. But imagine how different the world might be. And see, I know that just by saying that, I'm making some of you angry. And I get it. It's not a pleasant thought to me either. But maybe we should recall that we collectively bear the guilt for putting Jesus on the cross in the first place. God still forgives us. The practice of confessing our sins is not about telling God what he doesn't know. God knows what you did. He sees it all. You're not hiding anything from him. It is about admitting to ourselves how badly we need God's forgiveness. Not, not because we need to dwell on it or we need to feel guilt or shame, but because only by first admitting that we need it can we get it. And praise be to God, the second you ask for it, God does forgive your sins. And not just forgives them, but moves on completely. Acts as if they did not happen. You are forgiven and made new. The more that you begin to experience that in your own life, the more you are able to offer it to others. And has there ever been a time in human history when the world needed forgiveness more than right now? Can you recall any time when we were more divided, more afraid, more hateful? our ability to forgive, our ability to admit our own faults and be forgiven could make all the difference. There is no such thing as being too bad for God to forgive. But you can be too proud to ask for it. I want you to abandon that pride. 
confess your sins, not because you're guilty and you need to, not because you need to wallow in shame, but because only by doing that can you experience the forgiveness of the God who has already laid down his life for you and me. And once that happens, that forgiveness begins to spread to the rest of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.